Hello everybody, welcome to our virtual 67 Palmal. Now we're very pleased to welcome back Jasper Morris, MW, author of Inside Burgundy. Uh, in 1855, the same year as the classification of the Medoc, Dr. Jules Laval published a celebrated book about the Coke d'Or where he spoke of certain vineyards as Tête de Cuvée, and Jasper will now be exploring six of these vineyards. Um, so please chat away on the side, share with us what you're drinking and where you're drinking it from, and put your photos on social media with hashtag 67 from home. As usual, at the end, we'll have 15 minutes to ask questions, but please ask questions throughout, and we'll also do a poll of your favourite two wines. So a big welcome, Jasper. Hey, Jasper. How yes, are you? Hello, Ronan. I'm fine. What about you? Very good, thank you. How Very is good. life in Burgundy? Well, um, ups and downs. Um, we spend a bit of the weekend trying to chase away. We've got some of the uh, Frelon Asiatique, the Asian hornets, are attacking our bees. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, and there was a bit of a local difficulty uh, with the Ospies to Bone at the weekend when they've uh, decided to push back the date of the auction. So, uh, okay. And nonetheless, I've been uh, getting out and about and doing some tastings. And, uh, are they going to do a virtual auction or anything like that? Um, uh, still, everything's being discussed, but certainly from the Christie's perspective, that's entirely doable. Um, it's a question of uh, whether that works for all the parties concerned, because there are a lot of people involved. Yeah. Great. All right, Jasper, thank you very much. Good to see you as always. Well, right. Should we start? Uh, yes. Um, good. Welcome, everybody. I can see the chat has started. Uh, keep it going. Uh, it's going to be fun tonight because we've got a wide range of, of wines uh, with the one common theme, which is looking at vineyards which were really well favoured in the 19th century, which didn't make it through to Grand Cru status. And we can think if any of these should have done and, uh, and what they have to say to us today. So the first book about Burgundy didn't really go into detail of uh, individual vineyards, but just talked a little bit about uh, certain vineyards and styles of wine. And that was the Abbey Claude Arnoux writing in 1728. Uh, he spent 50 years of his life uh, being a, a teacher of Latin and French to the children of the English gentry based in London. And he thought that something that would be interesting as part of it was to give them a little textbook on what the wines of Burgundy were like. But it's very general. There's an attempt at a map, but it's pretty basic. And it's way before anybody started to get serious. <clears throat> we do have a few sources prior to then, but they're mostly um, civil servants doing surveys of what's going on uh, in France in general, but including Burgundy. So there's the Intendant Abouchou uh, did it in the 1660s for uh, Louis XIV. And then after Arnoux, at the end of the 18th century, uh, a couple of writers or researchers called Cotepe and Biguier um, also did something uh, in looking at the Côte d'Or and in fact um, doing quite a bit of commentary on the scene of viticulture and the wines. But again at this point there is no real intention of classifying any vineyards. So that comes later in the 19th century, first with a generalist, um, André Julien, writing in 1815-16 for the first edition, uh, his uh, topography de tous les vins connus, topography of all the known wines. And it's fascinating because it's sort of Victorian thoroughness uh, in pre-Victorian times and indeed a different country. Um, but he does go through all the regions and he does start to try to put a sense of order on which are the best vineyards. So to give you an indication, if I can find it, um, he doesn't have the, this tête cuvée notation, but he talks about uh, 
premier cuvées, cuvées, deuxième, troisième, etc. And in his first category, he had Chambertin, doesn't mention Claude Bez, probably included that, uh, Claude Bougeot, Rony Conti, Richebourg, Grémini Saint-Vivant, Latache, Les Saint-Georges in Nuit, uh, three whites. But he also mentions as just underneath that, sort of category 1B, if you like, there's the Fils Saint-Claude de la Perrière, which is going to be our first wine tonight, Verroil, which he puts in Marais Saint-Denis, so we don't know quite what he means, because there's one Verroil that's in Chambol and there's one Verroil that's in Chevrolet Chambertin, neither of which is thought to be in uh, an especially favoured site, so we don't quite know what he meant by that. Claude de Tar, Claude de la Roche, Musigny, Bonnemar, and the Claude de Premo in Nuit Saint-Georges, we don't know what he means by that, but we're going to have a Premo wine this evening. So uh, it got published also in English in 1824, which is the year that uh, uh, Mr. Henderson published an English version of the same sort of thing. Uh, we then move uh, 1825, uh, a chap called Dr. Morello, Denis Morello, um, did a little work on the wines around the bone, but he expanded that in 1831 into uh, uh, the, uh, the look at the, the, the vine and wine in the Cote d'Or. And in fact, I've got um, this little slim volume here is uh, a facsimile edition of uh, Arnoux in 1728. And then here comes the Vigne et le Vin Côte d'Or. This is Dr. Morello, uh, much more substantial book in uh, 1831. And at various different times over the last 20 or 30 years, people have published facsimile editions of these things which you could probably still uh, get somewhere or other. But the big one was a certain, uh, he was christened Dr. Jean. Um, well, he wasn't christened Dr. He, was, he was Jean Laval, but always known in the family and outside as Jules, born in 1820. In 1852, he wrote a book, which I quite like to get hold of, but have never seen, which is a, a history of edible mushrooms. In 1855, however, the big work for which he's best known is his History and Statistics of the Vine and the Grape Wines of the Cote d'Or. And this is really quite an important book. Uh, it's, I've got my, my same simile edition. It's slightly smaller than um, Morello was, uh, and it has a preamble which is historical, geographical, and a little bit afterwards more into winemaking, what makes it all tick. But what he does that nobody has done before is he goes through it village by village, a little bit of the history of the village, including owners, and then especially uh, he starts going into the vineyards, um, the top ones, and he brings in this new category, classification, shall we say. Sometimes he calls the very top wines Orlean, sort of, um, or class Orlean, and sometimes he calls them uh, Tete Cuvée. Uh, otherwise, the wines are premier cuvée, deuxième cuvée, troisième cuvée, and then the ordinary stuff. Um, what's a tiny bit frustrating for anybody with a very methodical mind is that how he classifies them in the text as he runs through village by village is one thing. And then at the end, he does a, has a little mini chapter on his tête de cuvées, and they don't quite correspond with what he's said in the uh, text village by village. It's not too far different, but it's not quite the same. So, uh, oh, Robin, if you've got the mushroom book, uh, uh, let me know, tell me how, if it's any good. Um, someone has asked the question, Mark, uh, any of the books available translated to English? 
no, but you have brought up a very good point because there is one of my Master of Wine colleagues and actually uh, formerly Christie's, um, Charles Curtis, just looking for it, it must be somewhere around on my desk. Um, he has written an interesting book. Um, I can't see where I put it. I've got so many piles of books uh, everywhere, all over the place. Um, but uh, his book is... Sorry to keep diving off the screen as I try and find it. Um, he's done a little um, conglomerate, if you like, in which he has translated the relevant bits from Laval and from Dr. Morillo and from Julien and one or two other sources. And he's brought it all together in order to be able to um, give his version of, um, not his version, but to give an understanding of the Grand Cru uh, vineyards and the other top vineyards of Burgundy and how they've been looked at over the years. So it's actually um, <clears throat> a really useful work. If somebody has the book to hand, then um, please, ah, <clears throat> you're getting ahead of me. I shan't be quoting much from inside Burgundy, but I will be quoting a bit from Ying, my friend Ying Xian, uh, his thesis on Claude La Roche, um, which, uh, as Dominic points out, you can get from the IMW um, website. Uh, that's going to come into play a little bit uh, later on. So I'm just going to move these books off my table to give me more room. And I found what I was really looking for. Here we are, Charles Curtis. Don't know if you, how well you can see that, but it's called The Original Grand Cruise of Burgundy. Uh, and uh, I was obviously reading it at the bath at some point because I, it's, I dropped it in the bath. And so it's uh, pages got a bit funny, but I found it really quite very interesting and, and, and useful. So, so we got to Laval, um, 1855, so the famous year for, for wine lovers. Um, and also what's important about Laval is he had a fairly good map. Um, uh, the author's name is Charles Curtis. Um, he, uh, Laval has got a <clears throat> pretty good map, which was then taken up by um, the arrondissement the authorities, if you like, in Beaune, uh, their Committee of Agriculture, and they produced a map of all the vineyards of the Côte d'Or, shading them in different colours. So pink if they were in the first class, yellow if they were second class, and green in the third class. And these subsequently became uh, done up by the well-known map chap called Lama. And uh, here you'll just get a little bit of an idea of it. I'll hold it further away and, and then bring it a bit further forwards. But there you can see the colour scheme of green, yellow and pink. Um, that's a, a recently reproduced edition, which Carol at um, Carol Giroux was very kindly uh, provided for me. Um, so from that, this is important because this becomes later on uh, one of the base points for analysis of uh, what might make it to Grand Cru and subsequently what makes it to Premier Cru. So we now zap through to um, the sort of more historical times and the legislation um, of Appellation Controle. 1905, they start to put this into place. Uh, 1919, the first suggestion, the first law for appellations comes into place. And it's worth pointing out that we had appellations before we had 
Appellation Controle, called Appellation d'Origine those times. Uh, but between 1919 and 1935, you just had appellations which said it comes from here and no more than that. And interestingly, up to 19, I think the vintage of 1934, there was 34 million hectolitres were declared as Appellation d'Origine. And after that, once Appellation d'Origine Controle comes into play, when there are rules of engagement, it drops down to three and a half million. So lots of people to begin with, at any rate, didn't really want to play if they were going to be regulated. So the idea of the controlled appellations was that there were certain rules that said, you've got to use these grapes, you've got to make it in this way, uh, and it's much stricter to make sure you do what you want. And just a reminder that the whole concept of appellation is nothing to do with protection for the consumer. It's entirely to do uh, with protection for the uh, local producers so that other people don't copy them. So, um, Right, uh, if it hasn't been clarified before, Laval is, uh, Robin Laval is the um, name of the main man. So in 1935, and over the next two or three years, all the appellations, or most of the appellations come into place, they're either based around the village or they're what we now call Grand Cru. And something which I hadn't really picked up on until it was in Ying, Ying Xianpan's um, research paper, is that they weren't specified as Grand Cru's to begin with. And indeed, they weren't even supposed to have the words Grand Cru on the label. And we're not quite sure when this special uh, designation came in. Legally, it was not till 1988, apparently. And at that point, you were um, could and should put it on the label. Whereas prior to that point, because it wasn't specified as going on the label, it would in fact have been possibly tolerated, but, uh, um, but officially not really allowed. Um, so earlier on, they were more often referred to probably still by the name Tete de Cuvée. The point was they had an appellation for a single vineyard. That was the key. And it's only subsequently that we've taken to calling them Grand Cruz. So that's, that's quite a preamble. Um, Premier Cruz came into play during the war in a hurry in 1942, uh, when it was decided that it was important to uh, protect certain vineyards, which the Germans would not rip out and use for um, the ground for other other stuff that was in, important to their war effort, uh, if they had crew status. So broadly speaking, things which have been classified as premier crew back in Laval's time in the map of 1861, um, uh, mostly became premier crews there and then, with a few changes thereafter. Good, good, good. Okay. Um, Somebody has just created uh, uh, something from Maison Ilan, and I nearly, Domaine Ilan, Maison Ilan, I did nearly quote them because uh, I got a call um, from uh, the chap who, who, who set it up and subsequently all ended up rather sadly. But uh, he said to me, you want to get hold of a copy of the Dr. Laval book? And I said, sure, you can get a facsimile from the Athenaeum bookshop in Bern. He said, no, 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 I want the first edition. And that would have set him back a, you know, a couple of thousand euros, uh, at least. And uh, this was at the same time that he was um, pushing the line that he was a completely penniless uh, person who'd come in from outside and uh, uh, had no money to make the wine and needed help, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't quite understand that juxtaposition. Anyway, so um, 
I glossed over quite rapidly um, Dr. Morello. He made a few changes to what Julien had suggested, but his tête de cuvées were geographically north to south, Chambertin, Clodebez, Clodetat, Musigny, Amarez, but not Bonnemar, Clovugeau, um, Romanée Conti, Romanée, Romanée Saint-Vivant, Richebourg, La Tache, Les Saint-Georges again, Corton. Then it becomes interesting. He has Savigny-le-Bonne-Bataillère, Bonne-Fèvre, Bonne-Grève, Pomar-Epineau, Pomar-Claudicito, Volnay-Champon, Volnay-Carré, Volnay-Centineau, and uh, Morgeau in uh, Chassin-Morinchet. So uh, a couple of those are going to come into play tonight. But by the time we get to Dr. Laval, um, he's got the, the obvious ones, but um, what he does in that back chapter is he talks about his top tete cuvées, other ones which are also tete cuvée number one, but slightly below that, below the first names, and then tete cuvée number two. So his top tete cuvées uh, will all have become Grand Cru's. Let's have a look and see. We've got Chambertin uh, and um, uh, Claude Bez and Claude Bougeot and Romani Conti. Uh, that might be all he puts in the very top category. And then also is um, Tete Cuvée number one, but, but not, not with star rating, if you like. He has Clodetard, Claude Lombre, Musigny, Bonnemar, Richebourg, Romanée Saint-Vivant in part, La Tache, Les Saint-Georges, Corton in part. So all of those apart from Les Saint-Georges are now Grand Cru's. And in Tete Cuvée number two, he has the Fils Saint-Claude La Perrière, which we shall come to very shortly. Chevry Clos Saint Jacques, Mazy Chambertin, Verroil, Chevry Chambertin version, um, the rest of Romanée Saint Vivant, the rest of Corton, uh, Von Romanée Les Beaumont, Echezeau, Nuit Boudot, Nuit Caille, Nuit Crat, Nuit Merger, Nuit Poré, Nuit Poulier, Nuit Torre, Nuit Vaucrat, Nuit Corvée, which we're going to have tonight, Nuit Didier, Nuit Forêt, uh, Bonne Grève and Bonne Fève, we're going to have the Fève tonight, uh, Volnay Champon, which we'll have tonight. Volnay Carré, Volnay Centineau, Puligny Maraîcher, Clavoyant, because that was entirely red in those days. Um, so he, it's, it's in his tête de cuvée for red. Interesting to see if we can persuade the Lefebvre's to uh, uproot a bit of Chardonnay, see what they can do with it. Not going to happen. Um, Morgeau again, uh, Clos Saint-Jean in Chassin-Maraîcher, which we're going to have, and Clos-Pitois, which is the very end of Chassin before you go into Centineau. Uh, and then the Clotavan in Saltenay. Good, preamble done. So uh, there we go. Um, lots of chat going on, that's kind of you. Thank you, keep it going. And I shall now um, start talking about the individual wines. So I've chosen them not quite at random, I've chosen vineyards which I think I have interesting things to say about, uh, mostly wines which I like, uh, wines which haven't made it to Grand Cru, and are not the, the sort of obvious understudies. I mean, we've done enough talking about Clos Saint-Jacques, Amoureux, Malconsol, blah, blah, blah. Interesting. Incidentally, Malconsol wasn't in any of those lists. Um, so I thought we'd do the ones which uh, are not currently being talked about as being uh, Grand Cru um, candidates, like Les Saint-Georges and the Pomars. Uh, so, we're going to do the next one's round. Now, in the case of the FISA, um, they actually tried at the time of the Grand Cru's first happening, uh, the, the owner then, uh, it's been in the uh, Jolier family uh, since 
1853, um, and the member of the family at that time uh, who um, uh, owned it applied for it to be called Perrier Chambertin, but he got short shrift. And even now, the current owner, Benin Joliet, he's quite keen. He has put together a dossier to have it made as Perrier Grand Cru, but uh, in my opinion, and now also in his own opinion, uh, it's it's not going to happen. But uh, uh, you know, good on him to have the ambition. He felt that his immediate predecessors had not been making the wine well, uh, and so he made a lot of changes. To begin with, he got Philippe Charlepin to help him. Now he's doing it on his out on his own. Zip, 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 zip. Here we are. So on the edge of Fusain, and you will note that it goes across the dotted line. And there's a little bit, which is in a vineyard known as Coeur d'Aron, which is otherwise Cotonou Village. It is currently a Fusain Premier Cru. It is all part of the same property. And uh, he got permission to, or they got permission back in the day, to go across the boundary. And the owner before the um, uh, Benin, the Joliet family, the uh, Marquis de Montmore, he actually used to sell his Fusain at the La Paria at the same price as Chambertin. So he also had a, had a, had a pretty punchy idea of what it was worth. Um, this is the only one uh, I've got pictures of, but I was there recently and I took two or three pictures. So um, we might just uh, take a look at those to put it into perspective. Uh, I love this because this is it's originally, it's an old Cistercian uh, monastic house here. Clonela uh, Perrier, Perrier means quarry and it's built out of the stone from the quarry next door. And every time I go, I'm expecting to see a damsel with her hair dropping out of the top window down to the ground, Rapunzel's tower uh, in, in this dress. But it, it's, it's just an extraordinary uh, building. It's set up towards the top of the hill and it has got an amazing view um, across the, uh, well, across to Dijon, to the Jura, down towards Vie Saint-Georges and Beaune. Next, please. And underground, uh, we have the cellar again with that Cistercian vaulted roof. And when I first went there, it just had a sort of beaten earth floor. Now it's got some uh, um, stones on. I, I went and visited sort of between the two lockdowns. We got all those, those little colored things you can see somewhere in the middle. Those are sort of individual spittoons, which we're supposed to have if we taste these days. And there are his barrels. And the man himself who makes it is a Benin Joliet. Uh, looking, looking, looking cheerful as if uh, maybe the, the young Elton John before he went uh, uh, wilder. Um, but uh, there he is in the vineyard or part of the vineyard because it's a five hectare vineyard. Great. So we'll uh, we'll lose those for a minute and let's try the wine. So it's it's pretty funky, um, which is a definite choice. He's gone since then from 2017. Uh, he's gone to 100% whole bunch. I used to buy this wine for Berry Brothers and after I left, they dropped it because we never managed to sell it at the full price. And every time it got discounted, every single case went in a couple of days, it got flew out the door. Various people listening tonight will be amongst those who, uh, who encouraged it to disappear out of the door. Um, but since we couldn't actually sell it at the, at the sort of the full price, I think my successors as buyers at Berry Brothers have dropped it. So uh, the 17 is an absolute cracking wine, uh, which was 100% whole bunch. This is 70% whole bunch. Uh, about 20% um, uh, new wood. It's aged for nearly two years in wood. This vintage is, uh, was damaged a bit by the frost. It's slightly more somber than some of the years are. So whoever suggested um, uh, that it might go well with grass, I can see that. Uh, 
And Alistair, that, that is very definitely not my car in that picture. Mm. Yeah. It's characterful. I think in a, in a blind lineup, I don't think it's going to leap out and win the day. If you decide it's your wine, then every time you open a bottle of this, uh, it gives real pleasure. Um, those whole bunches give a little bit of a, of a tingle. I think it would be a little bit more somber and a bit more rustic in the tannin department. That's a, theoretically the Fissin um, regular descriptor, which is becoming less true with the global warming. But I think that the whole bunch is the reason he's gone that direction is to try to break up those tannins and bring it through to a more interesting uh, conclusion. So um, yeah, Mark is, uh, is one of those who has enjoyed all the Joliers been ended at berries. Uh, they may still have some earlier vintages, I'm not sure. This 2016 would have come from them. So, um, you know, it, it's not a heavyweight wine. It's not Grand Cru for me. It's a really nice wine. Um, Fissa is perhaps going to grow in size because there is a suggestion that all the Cote de Nuit village vineyards next door in the um, parish of uh, Brochon should become part of Fissa. And then what is the Cote de Nuit village appellation will just be those vineyards down south of Louis Saint-Georges. I think there's some sense in that. Uh, so I don't know if they're sending it into the UK. There is, however, uh, it's a monopoly, five hectare monopoly. That's a lot for one person to sell. So at one point in around 2011, 12, 13, maybe, it was uh, a certain volume of it was going to Drouin and they were uh, making the wine and, uh, and selling it. They dropped out after, uh, in 2014. And from 2015, Albert Bichot has been buying uh, a significant proportion of the crop. And that wine is sold through uh, M&S and uh, I had a bit of a go at them because they said it's a monopoly of um, Bichot because they knew it was a monopoly. They didn't realize it actually belonged to somebody else and that Bichot gets part of it. So there we go. So, oh. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm enjoying your commentary. Uh, it makes my life a lot easier if I can see animation from, uh, from the rest of you. Okay, that's wine number one, if there are any more comments on that. I will slurp it down and go to wine number two, which is another real favorite of mine um, without being a, uh, a world beating wine. It's one that, uh, that, that works for me. So get my annotate buttons out. The Clos Saint-Jean starts here, comes around here. This bit called Chassin de Clos Saint-Jean is also part of it comes down here. There's a bit called Les Murets, that's also part of it, and a bit called Les Rebichets. All that is Clos Saint-Jean, which makes a decent size on top. It is mostly white wine, and it should not be. Uh, when I'm emperor of the universe, um, people who make white wine there will be executed unless they convert back to red. I'm being slightly unfair because there are bits of this. We're in the Les Rebichets sector. That's perfectly good white wine soil. But just looking at this, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 12, 13, 14, I found 17 people making white wine in Clos Saint Jean. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and twelve, uh, quite often the same, making red. Many people do something of both. Um, but it used to belong, this vineyard, in its entirety to people called de Marcy, who are based in Sontenay. 
And Berry Brothers used to buy quite a lot from them in, under their own label and probably their own bottling in, in um, your old Basingstoke. Um, and I found in the um, sort of Berry family private cellar some 1952 Clos Saint-Jean. And one evening when we were doing a tasting with, I think Fred Lafarge had come over to, to do a vertical of his Volnay Clos de Chêne. And after the tasting, we said we'd give him a bite of dinner and open up something. And I opened a bottle of the 1952 Clos Saint-Jean, Berry Brothers label. And goodness me, it was marvellous. Uh, it's a perfectly decent vintage 52, but not a memorable one. And that wine took 20 minutes, half an hour, really to, to grow and to um, think about it with a bit of oxygen. And we spent an hour um, with it after that. And it was just the most lovely bottle. And I had a, a wine trade friend of mine born in 1952 also joined us. So, uh, so he got a thrill out of that. Um, anyway, uh, now in Clos uh, uh, Saint-Jean, as I say, too many people have gone for white. Why have they done that? You get a bigger crop with white, you take it to market probably earlier, it's easier, less expensive to make, um, bigger yield I've already mentioned, and you get a higher price for it. So it's sort of a no-brainer commercially, but I wish they wouldn't because it makes such a lovely red wine. And indeed, I've just tasted with um, uh, Jean-Marc Pio, whose wine this is. If you're with us last week, we had his Clos um, uh, white wine, and now I was going to have Paul Pio, that's well, Thierry Pio, but the main Paul Pio's very close Saint Jean. Whichever merchant it was uh, sent me the Jean Marc Pio, six, seven pound mile, check with me. That I was happy with Jean Marc. I looked at my notes and said, You bet I am, very happy. Uh, so that's what we've got here. Probably lose the map now, Renan, thank you. Um, so I uh, what vintage are we on with the 2014 now? Um, we don't know how old these Pinot vines are, but we do know that uh, before Jean-Marc uh, took over the domain, it was his father, Jean Pio, who was born in 1931, so he's 89 now, still comes to the winery every day. Um, but he has said that these vines were planted well before he was born. So they're probably 100-year-old vines here, um, which would have done in last week's uh, subject as well. So 2014, not the easiest of vintage because of hail, but from memory, I think the hail was uh, more further north. I don't think Chassin got too badly hit in 2014. Um, no stems in this, uh, 12 months in barrel, maybe 30% new wood. Uh, then uh, six months after that um, in tank before bottling. Yum. Likes to give them a reasonably decent time in the in the vat, so they have a, fair, a bit of a pre-maceration. These stems, as I say, then a fairly long fermentation time. Um, the thing about Chassin Clos Saint Jean is that typically the red wines are not terribly deep in colour, which is one reason why there was a period when people would have undervalued them for that reason. Silly of them, we know that uh, as Anthony Hansen natively said in his book on Burgundy that uh, for Pinot Noir colour is optional. Um, Another producer I know in Chassain has recently replanted Hexo Saint-Jean and uh, the previous vines had not been a particularly good quality of Pinot. She replanted with a selection extra fin, extra fine Pinot, and she's finding the colour incredibly light and the yield is very, very low. So she's scratching her head and wondering if she didn't uh, go too far with the extra fineness of the selection. 
but everybody I know um, who has the red one reports that it's less deep in color than their other Chassin Premier Cru reds. And just by way of French you call la petite histoire, the small story, uh, I have been told by at least one of them that when Michel Bertin comes to taste, he refuses to taste the white Clos Saint-Jean, he'll only taste the red. I haven't heard that from Michel himself, but uh, good for him if so. So no stems, no peppery tingle, really, really um, refined bouquet, quite high acid uh, on the palate, which is going to take a while yet to um, resolve. Uh, Julian, I don't know what the exact yield is, but they're still yielding perfectly decently. It's not like, you know, they're just scrabbling around for a few bunches. So it will, of course, be low, but it's not, uh, I don't think it's ridiculously low. Um, Paul's asked a question about have the wines lost something post phylloxera? Um, so you had the 19th century incredibly dense plant, uh, plantations, but you also had ungrafted. Um, so uh, the argument is why current Volnay will never be as good as it was way back then. Um, two thoughts. One is density of plantation, and there are people experimenting with that. And my unscientific uh, feeling is that uh, the high density plantations have got significantly more to offer than the regular density to the extent that after Olivier Lamy started doing it in Saint-Aubin, they changed the rules to prevent people doing it because uh, uh, they didn't want uh, sort of tall poppy syndrome. They wanted to cut them down to size. Also for a period, the Maine de la Vougerie made a bottling of Geoffrey Chambertin Les Eversels with Densité, which was, even though it was younger vines, was significantly more interesting than the regular Eversels bottling. So the density works. Also, whenever I've tasted ungrafted um, uh, wines, from recent plantations. For example, Charles Jogge did it in the Loire with his uh, Les Varennes du Grand Clos, uh, I think it was the vineyard. Uh, I tasted the vine age, could only have been about 10 years old. Uh, I had some 89 of it, which I finished in some 96. The wine was just stunning. It was head and shoulders above anything else he'd done. I don't know what the density of planting was, but it was uh, ungrafted. And maybe if we can't trust our, our uh, rootstock anymore, um, because the 161.49 rootstock is dying on us, maybe a few people will say, if we've got to pull it all out after 15 years, let's go back to ungrafted. Anyway, just a thought on that. Uh, um, I'm loving the nose of this. I was a little bit taken aback by the amount of acidity on the palate for now, but again, with food, that's going to sort itself out. Right, good. I have that up clear space. I gave a longer preamble than usual, so time is advancing. We're going to stay in the coat de bone, going to um, rather grand producer, the Marquis d'Angerville. Now, of course, it was his grandfather, the Marquis Sem d'Angerville. I made a terrible mistake in the first printing of the first edition of Inside Burgundy by saying that the, um, not only was his father, um, current Marquis Guillaume's father, Jacques, but his father was also Jacques because I copied something out of Clive Coates without verifying my sources. And it was, it was wrong for Clive and it's wrong for me. So I apologize all round on that. 
So we're in 2014 again. This is uh, Champon. Of course, the most famous wine for the Marquis d'Angeville is the Clé des Ducs, um, which he certainly would say ought to be Grand Cru. And uh, Henri Boyot, who's a very outspoken uh, producer, would uh, support that. Um, but uh, he also has a tapier, which is very well thought of, and he has nearly four hectares of Champon. And his vines, uh, I might not put them in exactly the right uh, spot. Let's see. Um, uh, here is Champon, and I will try and mark where his vines are. Um, but they basically, they come uh, all the way down. It's badly done. Sorry about that. Uh, let's try, let's try a thicker line and less shiny bit of my desk. But he's he's in a block that goes that goes top to bottom, three point nine eight hectares. Um, so if I were now looking at uh, the map of um, Volnay, I'd make an exception. Claude Duke is is a case apart, but otherwise Claude Chen, Taipier, rest of Claude Chen and Taipier below. Uh, top bit of Caire, and perhaps also maybe Chevrolet, maybe the rest of Caire, maybe Champon. That to me is the sweet spot for Volnay. But anyway, two of our predecessors uh, said that they thought that this could be uh, Tete de Cuvée. Too many bits of paper. Where's my correct bit of paper? But Champon came into the frame for, I said two, have I got my, is my memory correct? Um, yes, it was Tete Cuvée for Dr. Morello and for Dr. Laval. So that's what we have here. This is all destemmed. Hmm. Unlike the uh, Chassin Maurice Clos Saint Jean, where I felt that was an incredibly youthful, we can probably kill that map now. Uh, um, I thought it was incredibly useful, youthful. This has now got a beginning to mature nose. Colour is still mostly quite young. Hmm. My early memories of Omne Champon, well, I knew it from um, uh, Lafont first, then de Monti, then d'Angeville, but also the lovely lady um, Armand Dure of Domaine Montelly Dure. She used to drink uh, her Montelly in 1966 at lunch and either the 28 or the 29 Volnay Champon in the evening. And sometimes she'd say, come by in the afternoon and we'll start the bottle early and come and share it with me. So uh, I didn't ever have the 29, but on two or three occasions, I had the 28 Volnay Champon with her. It didn't do her any good health-wise, unfortunately, because she died just before her 100th birthday. Exaggerated a bit, 97 in fact, but still. Just to clarify uh, to Robin, when I say a case apart for Claire Duke, I don't mean that it's so much better than the rest of Volnay, um, though it is clearly a contender amongst the very top lines in Volnay. I mean more that it's not in the same geographical area as the rest. Um, so that's why I made, made it a case apart. It's also difficult when you have something which is a monopoly, you only see somebody's version of it. So to get a full understanding of a, vin uh, of a vineyard, you sort of need to know um, um, uh, you sort of need to know um, who the other people are. Tony's mentioned that on the Donjeville uh, website is the exact location. 
and I was trying to do it from memory. I had a look at the website earlier today, uh, and I may not have called it exactly right. But you can check that. So the drinking window for the 2014 Volnay Champagne, I'm actually finding I can begin to enjoy this now. This was the third of the three big hail vintages, 12, 13 and 14, and Volnay really did get it in the neck. And it happened on the day that they're having their annual tasting festival party, which they call the Elegance de Volnay, and they mix it in with a fashion show. And uh, they had some marquees up for, for a large lunch uh, to go with it. And just as time went by, around about midday, as it was all about to start, suddenly the clouds rolled over and the hail came down. Uh, yes, the Sontenot is not on the on that uh, Volnay map. It's something I will change in the next edition of Inside Burgundy because it should be included. Sontenot, of course, lives in Merceau, but is christened as, as Volnay Sontenot. And that also uh, is a Tete de Cuvée. And indeed, the early vintages that I first bought of the Comte Lafont, Volnay Sontenot, it actually had a quotation from Dr. Morello. 1831, Tete Cuvée, on the label, which they subsequently removed, which I'm a bit sorry about. Good, any comments then uh, uh, on, on, on this wine? I'm really loving the nose. I'm finding it a little bit more open on um, the palate too. So starting to drink now, another 10 years will be absolutely fine, but it's not gonna be one of the mythical, most long-lived vintages. Until as uh, said, is it correct that the Marquis was part of the deciding board that decided it wouldn't be right for them to claim a Grand Cru, their own appellations? Yes, also Henri Gouge in Nuit Saint-Georges. And in fact, I was having this discussion with a vigneron uh, only today about exactly that. And they were saying, you know, isn't it a shame that they didn't put it out to uh, uh, third parties to make the decisions? Because the result is that not Volney, but Nuit Saint-Georges has ended up with too many premier crews maybe it's compensation for not having the Grand Cru. Uh, so there. Mm. Um, and I do feel, Julian, that uh, the Dodgeville wines age pretty well. So, good. Jan's asked the question about Clovuche, about rating it so highly. We now consider it rather uneven, even for Grand Cru. Yes, we do. I think it was partly Mystique uh, at the time. Uh, no, it was the same size then uh, as it is now, um, but it was more in people's minds than it is now. Other things have caught up and overtaken it. But yes, it's, it is a surprise that it got quite that high uh, a ranking. There's some work to be done, a DPhil student, in looking at all the prices of how, of what price different vineyards sold at during the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries what price wines from the uh, vineyards sold at as well, uh, and really trying to come up with some sort of long-term statistical information, because that of course is how the 1855 uh, classification was based in Bordeaux. It wasn't people's um, subjective or even objective uh, ratings. It was just done based around price. Yeah. Nice, elegant wine, as Alistair mentions, as uh, a marquis would, would wish. So just in recent, um, first of all, it was uh, his brother-in-law, um, Renaud de Villette, who took over from the Marquis Jacques uh, uh, d'Angeville, and then Guillaume gave up his, his job as a, a, a banker, um, I believe at least partly in London, 
um, and, uh, and took over in 2005. He appointed uh, Francois Duvivier as his winemaker. Francois is a great guy, done a really good job. And also they, from 2009, they certified organic and they've moved biodynamic pretty much uh, from the start of, of this regime. So um, doing, doing a very good job. Drink my glass, we move on. Right, so we're going to um, move now to a second wine from the Cote de Nuit. I decided to do the wines in vintage order, and I suppose in theoretical uh, rise of concentration. But here we have a Nuit Saint-Georges, and this time I have got the full appellation because we've included the bits in Premo. Um, if you look at the um, 1861 map, you will see that most of what's in pink on here at the Premier Cruise um, was included as, uh, I haven't got it in front of me, I'm doing this a little bit from, uh, uh, from memory, but I think uh, at that period, um, not to download, I think the premier cru cuvées would have been that. So not Damod, not Torre, not Ozagia, uh, possibly not Ocro, but uh, along here includes Vaucran for sure and goes along here, probably doesn't include, oops, sorry, didn't mean to go down as far as that, along there. So, you know, an awful lot of what's premier cru today was uh, premier cuvée then. And uh, we have, um, going back as far as uh, Julien, um, we have got the Clou de Premo, we don't know, but it's somewhere in this area over on the, on the extreme left. Uh, we don't quite know what that would have been. And we've got Les Saint-Georges, of course. Uh, following on with Morinot, we only had Les Saint-Georges. But, bring out my heart, why not? For Dr. Laval, we have Boudot. We have Kai. So, we have... Cra uh, back over here. Uh, where's my Cra gone? Uh, we have Merger back. We have Porre. So we've done them in alphabetical order. Um, uh, am I right with Porre there? Porre there, and then Poudier. Uh, Torre, so that uh, gets promoted for him. Vocra, the reason these are last uh, is not just alphabetical because uh, um, no Vocra we have. And then over in uh, Premo, we have Corvée Didier, which you hardly ever see Didier because it's a monopoly of the Hospice de Nuit, and it's divided up into lots of different cuvées and just sold through the charitable auction, and the Forêt, if you know the Claudia Forêt Saint-Georges from Domaine de Lale, it's a gorgeous wine. So those were his selections, and I ch chose not to do Les Saint-Georges uh, tonight because that's always trotted out as being the, you know, the candidate for Grand Cru promotion, and there is indeed a dossier which is slightly um, uh, not doing so well at uh, the moment, simply because of various um, sort of administrative things which are getting in the way. So we're going to do the corvée. And we're, this is a bold move because we're in one of the earliest of all sort of naturalistas. Uh, thank you for the map. Um, and we are going to uh, go for the main Henri Frederick Roch. Uh, so, um, well, Domain Priore Rock, I should say. His name is uh, was, he died sadly rather young, Henri Frederick Rock. 
Does anybody know? Put it up on the chat. We'll give you an opportunity to score points here. Uh, anybody know why it's called the main Priore rock? Um, so now he has made the wines uh, as naturally as they can possibly be made. Hates anybody coming to taste, at least out of barrel. It's not allowed. Uh, doesn't like journalists tasting at all. Um, I did go and have a really interesting tasting with him uh, 10 years ago before first edition of the book. I need to go back and, uh, and see them again. Um, he sadly uh, got ill and died uh, quite quickly just a couple of years ago. Uh, so it's a whole bunch, uh, no sulfur. Um, and yes, you're getting, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing the notes. It could easily be, it was a gamble uh, getting wine like this sent out under these conditions, but I thought that we should give it a go. So there may be, uh, Paul says, and uh, uh, some oxidation and some VA. I haven't yet smelt mine. Um, Color's still fine. The bouquet is, is okay. Maybe it's got an oxidative element. I am not uh, going to go just on that first sniff uh, saying that it's, it's oxidized, um, but it, it is going to be on the wild side. Mostly, um, when I've had his wines, they've typically been in restaurants or friends bringing them. If they're in restaurants, it's not been me who's paying because they are not, he's not shy on pricing. Um, so, uh, uh, I've had them mostly on other people's dollar, and so far I've almost always enjoyed the wines, I must admit. Hmm. The acidity is high. I'm not getting too much volatility of it, but there is definitely um, high uh, acidity in this which we found, so we've had three 2014s, we've had high acidity in two of them. In some instances, people picked a little bit early because of the rot that was encroaching because of the, the wretched fruit fly that only really attacked in that year. Um, it's certainly dry on the palate, Richter, uh, but that is something which I find typical of younger whole bunch wines fairly frequently. I don't mind that, but you know, everybody uh, each to their own. What I will say is, from my sample, it's 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 not uh, incorrect. Uh, it's less so than one or two of you have suggested, but it's not singing either. I'm not rushing out to um, to purchase this on this showing. So, in fact, there are they have five hectares of the Claude Corve, and they make three wines out of them. There is a Nuit Saint Georges Premier Cru. Um, there is a, a, a Nuit Saint Georges Premier Cru Vieville from Old Vines, and then their best. Old vines, particularly those with very small mineral berries, uh, they make into what they call the Clos des Corvées, which is the wine that we have tonight. Um, and what I haven't done, if you've got the wines, you'll be able to see the alcohol levels. It's just reminded me. I'll run through them so far. The Fissat declared at 13.5. He picks reasonably late. Uh, the Chassin declares at 13.5. The Volnay declares at 13.5. Bit of a pattern. And we're down to 12.5 for the Priore Rock. I would imagine he's somebody who takes what is, doesn't chapterize. And in 2014, some people might have chapterized. Um, while, I've, while I'm thinking about it, I'll just go ahead and tell you the last two. 13 on the Centenay and 14 on the Bone. Chanson Père et Fils. Well, we'll talk about that. Remind me if I don't mention it before. 
uh, when, when we get there. Um, now, if you've got a vinegary taste and smell, then you've got uh, VA for sure. I'm saying that in my sample, and they kind of might have come from different bottles, I'm not getting that very strongly. It's there, it is there, no, it's there, but um, um, it is, yeah, uh, Paul, you've hit it absolutely on the nose there. It is just slightly balsamic. I was talking to a grower today and I need to do some more work on this. Um, I said, and this vine here, I'm getting more um, uh, volatile uh, acidity on it. She said, no, there is no volatile on it, but there is more acetate. And I had it in my simple way. I'd actually rather confuse the two. So I need to have a session with Jamie Good, get Dr. Good to sort me out and tell me, tell me the difference. Stuart, I'll try and come back to your, um, uh, your comment there um, uh, yeah, in, a, in a second. Grand, okay. Um, I am in agreement that it's not, not singing for us tonight. I'm gonna to leave mine untouched in that glass, move to another glass. And on we go. Back to the Cote de Bone. Has a Cote de Me connection because this vineyard was owned by the predecessor of the de Villene family who owned Romani Conti. He had Sontenay vineyards, including Clote Havan, um, uh, Mr. Duvo Blochet. And uh, the lovely thing is that uh, when uh, he died, the inheritance went to two ladies and one got Sontenay vineyards and the other got Von Romane vineyards, including Romani Conti. And the one who got the Von Romane vineyards thought she'd been hard done by because uh, you were making more money out of Sontenay in those days. I love that story. Um, we have our map. We have Les Gravières. This map isn't quite right and uh, it's very nearly right, uh, but I'll explain where it goes fractionally wrong. So we are absolutely in the bottom right-hand corner. Zap, 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 zap. It's sort of an enclave within Gravier. If you look to the left, that's Gravier. Where the map's not quite right uh, is it goes across the border. Maybe it's just the scale makes it too difficult to show. Um, if you go over the road, you are still for a handful of rows in Sontenay and not in chassin Maréchaux. And if you go into that little bit there, you are still Sontenay Clos de Tavan, whereas you're outside the walls, which follow the road uh, above, along the side, down at the bottom, and up this side. Um, two producers, Chanoa Gagnard and one other, who currently escapes me, are, are on the other side. Incidentally, when we, um, those people who were talking about um, Tete de Cuvées back in the 19th century, the other vineyard from this area that they suggested is the Clos Pitois, which is there, it's, it's a subdivision of Chassagne-Mauge, um, but uh, uh, that also, it's a monopoly of the Bellon family, that also got uh, tete de cuvade in those days. Uh, but Clos de Tavan is interesting now, and I first got to know it and really enjoyed it in the um, previous incarnation of de Mendela Pustor in the days of Gérard Patel, uh, when I, I came to love this wine. Um, and then, of course, he died in, um, 1996, and uh, well, the vineyards were sold in 1996, he died shortly after, uh, and it went uh, to Patrick Londanger 
of the, the new look Pustor, if you like. Uh, so Clotavan, the, the Pustor are the main holders with um, just over two hectares, but you also have the main Lucien Musard, Jean-Noël Gagnard, F&D Claire, Michel Claire, uh, and I see Ron Moissonnet have, uh, have offered it in white at one point. Uh, who they got that from, I'm not quite sure. Um, or they maybe they own it. Um, but the one you're most likely to see is probably Domaine de la Pousse d'Or. Um, so it's, I went and I had a very good walk around this um, uh, vineyard in, just after the first uh, lockdown. And um, it, it starts sort of flat at the top and then it drops away as you come down uh, below. Um, at one side of it, with a bit more of a dip when you're at the road end, and then it goes back up if you're just across the road. Um, this particular wine, we are now 2010 vintage, so that vintage that surprised us that we didn't really know about at the outset, we just thought, what a relief, that uh, we've been able to make some wine that's perfectly good in this year, and then we discovered it was much better than we thought. Um, so it's um, no stems, Pustora are also experimenting with some amphora for three of their Volnay cuvées these days, but not for the Santenay. Um, but it uh, might be interesting to see if they did that. Um, hmm, that nose is now beginning to get properly mature. Colour is beginning to get not quite tawny, but certainly a little bit of brick red as you go out towards the edge. Mm. I'm getting a um, maturity, let's say. I won't necessarily go as far as oxidation, but at maturity on the nose, it's smooth and actually really nice to drink now on the palate. Um, reasonably good length. I think this is the main, it, now Patrick Lannanger's son, um, Benoit, has taken over. And I think we're actually going to see a further uptick in quality, which is already pretty good here. It was a tricky start, and there's a story which I think I can tell. One of these days I'm going to get into trouble with some of the stories I tell, but I think I can tell this one because I was told it by Patrick Landanger. So in his first year, he's uh, swanning around the place, feeling rather pleased with himself. The grapes have come in, uh, the wines are being made. He's loving his, his new life, having been a successful, I think, medical instrument maker and seller. Um, and uh, suddenly there's a loud knock on the door and a furious Ori Boyo turns up at the door and threatens to hit him um, because he said, how dare you come, buy vineyards, take over here, pretend you can do the job, and you've left, it's now two weeks after the vintage, you've left one of your plots unpicked. And Lonnache had no idea, he hadn't been out, he didn't even quite know where all his plots were, uh, and they had somehow or other managed to overlook it. So. As a result of that, he, he groveled, he admitted his fault rather than blustering, and he went out and he went and took the sort of winemaker's course, the CFPPR at the uh, Viticole, Lycée Viticole um, uh, in Bone, and learned how to do it properly for himself. Um, yes, Victor, I agree that this is balsamic, which for me, it, it, it's an element of oxidation as well as an element of uh, possibly volatility. Um, but I'm loving the wine on the palate. Um, not quite so keen on the nose. Okay, time moves on. Uh, we need to move on. We have one more wine. 
I always feel I haven't researched well enough for these occasions, but then if I'm talking so much and we get beyond the hour, I think I've gone too far. Bone, Premier Crew, Claude Fèvre, Monopole, Chanson, Père et Fils. So I went for a lovely walk in, um, again, sort of between lockdowns. Um, uh, I started down here by the Stade de Foot and the Stade de Rugby, and I walked up between Saint-Vin, which I don't like so much, um, Grève off to the left, Toussaint, Bressande, and then Lefebvre here, and above that, Claude uh, Lecu of Fèvre. But Lefebvre, it's not entirely, uh, but it is mostly Lefebvre, um, the monopoly as the Claude Lefebvre of Chanson Père et Fils. They've gone through a few incarnations of how they're doing their labels. They've now decided that all their wines will be labeled Chanson Père et Fils, and if it's Domain, which many are, uh, particularly in red, it will be have the word Domain in front. Prior to that, it was um, uh, Domaine Chanson for Domaine and uh, Chanson Bastion de l'Oratoire if it's Negociant. But this is all theirs. Now, why is this 14 when none of the others are? Reason being that the winemaker, both under the previous uh, general manager, Gilles de Corsal of Domaine de Corsal in Pomar, and the current one, uh, Vincent Arvenel, who used to work for Bouchard and then for Fauvelet, and now is general manager of uh, Chanson. They have kept the same winemaker, who is uh, one of the confluents of Von um, <coughs> uh, Romanet. And in their own domain, the confluents like to pick extremely late and do uh, 100%, um, not 100%, but a significant percent of whole bunch. So, um, of the two brothers, Yves Confuron uh, does the Domaine de Corsel wines and Jean-Pierre Confuron uh, does the uh, Chanson wines. So uh, it's mostly whole bunch. It's picked late, sometimes two weeks later than other people, about 30% new oak, so not enough to, to make a, um, any real statement. That would be typical of most of the other wines. Uh, Le Clos de Fèvre has been known, it first gets mentioned in 1307, so it's been around for a while. And uh, it is certainly Chanson's best bone, and it is one of the leading bones. It's a, it's a deep color. It's 2010, so it's joint oldest wine, but it's a much younger color, I would say, than the uh, Sontenay was. And I'm pretty happy with how that tastes, I must admit. Um, the concentration of fruit is there. It stayed young, the structure is there. Little bit, it's not especially peppery, it's, it's a rich strawberry to raspberry fruit, um, but the, the finish has got the, what those whole bunches give you with just pushing it out a bit further. Sometimes they dry it out, here there's a richness of fruit that doesn't. And it's clearly the confluent style to say, we know that stems can be a bit dry, so let's go with really, really ripe grapes and that sorts out that element of it. So Alistair for sure also is enjoying this wine. Um, I'm just going to check and see, we've got um, a couple more things I said I was going to mention. Um, uh, um, Sid, you mentioned about Guillaume says that Champagne's low yields more curvy, more plums and cherries, smoother finish, developing some spice with age. I don't know if that's going back to the Volnay Champagne, sorry, I should have seen it before and answered it then. I don't know if I'm, 
the Champon from Lafont, which is nice old vines, planted in 1921 and um, 1989, um, has, is not the smoothest. It's got a little bit more structure in it and does have some spice with age. So I'll go part of the way on that. And Stuart, you said that you struggle with Nuit Saint-Georges in general, but uh, if your wine of night is Champon, what would you recommend from Nuit Saint-Georges? Um, okay, so there are three appellations really in Nuit Saint-Georges. You've got the Premo wines, you've got the central Nuit Saint-Georges wines, which are deep and dark, and you've got the ones up towards Vain Romanet, which have a bit of the weight of Nuit Saint-Georges and some of the hedonistic style of Vain Romanet. So I might go for one that's a little bit in that direction, but not all the way to Vain Romanet. Um, so it could be the Clos de Torre would be a possible, or I'd go for some of the uh, richer wines from Promo, maybe the Clos de Torre Saint-Georges, though it is a whole bunch wine, or the Clos Saint-Marc, perhaps, from Petrus Friand, which is destemmed. Right, I think I've covered uh, most of your questions and comments. So let us take a little look, please, then at the poll. We have Sophie behind the scenes tonight. We have the poll. Uh, we have two votes, as always. I can vote two, and I am going to vote here and now. Ooh, as always, I have one sure vote, one I'm not quite sure about. Right, I've done it. So, five four, three, two, one. Let us please have the answers of the poll. You wait, basic breath. Right, joint uh, least favorite are the Domaine de la Pousteau and Domaine Priori Roch. Uh, then above that, we have the Joliet, Fissin, Claude de Perrier. I could have voted for that, but didn't. Despite the acidity, I decided to go with the Paul Pio Chassin Maraché as one of my votes. Uh, and that just uh, probably, with my vote, that just climbs onto the podium. But clearly behind the silver medal to the Marquis Belgeville and the gold medal to Chanson, which was my other vote. Um, so I, I hope that's been fun. I'm not sure that we saw anything um, that we would clearly push up into Grand Cru there. Um, I do think we've seen a couple of vineyards which are perhaps undervalued today. Um, uh, underrated vineyards in a valley like Clos Saint-Denis. You're right, Paul, that didn't get mentioned uh, at all anywhere. Nobody mentioned Clos Saint-Denis. It'll have to be the subject for another talk. Um, may I just mention what's still to come before the end of the year? I have one more in November on the 26th. I will be doing Grands Echasseaux. So we've got one vineyard, one Grand Cru, in which we will be looking at six different producers' interpretations. So do sign up for the wines for that. After that, we get into more Christmas mode. Uh, and something which um, I agreed a while back was on the 9th of December, I'm going to do some Christmas favourites. I'm not necessarily going to go ultra grand, maybe one wine, two wines. Uh, and uh, I've gone outside just Burgundy, but there's a link with Burgundy for all the wines. Um, and that would be one that would be great fun for, uh, for you to get the wines for that. And also maybe to have a bit of Christmas food, definitely get some Comte cheese to go with that because I'm going to include the Van Jeune. Um, I asked 67 if they might not send out a food parcel. They haven't answered yet, but I'm not sure that will happen. Then on the 14th and the 17th, 
It's going to be a head-to-head -head between myself and Jane Anson. In fact, it's going to be, we'll be alongside rather than against each other because we get on well and we're not going to try to be too competitive. But she's going to produce three lovely Bordeaux. I'm going to produce three lovely Burgundies for one of the sessions, I think on the 14th. And then on the 17th, we're going to do three favourite wines outside uh, Burgundy or Bordeaux and three favourite wines. Uh, we'll each do three favourites from outside. Good, good, good. Yes, Edward, thank you for that last comment. It is better when I have the wines. My two sets of wines for last week and for this week, they arrived the day after last week uh, together. Uh, I think the wretched uh, couriers had heard the next one was coming and decided to hold back and just do one delivery. So thank you all for your comments. Uh, um, and thank you, Jason. I've obviously done a good job for you. And uh, I hope that's true for all of you. Let us Very much, in due course. So, uh, yeah, yeah, all right. Good night, all. I'm going to fade away and have a great evening. Bye bye.